Welcome to Kohelet, a podcast brought to you by the elder team at Maricopa Springs Family Church. My name is Gabe, and today we're going to be looking at chapter 22 of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, uh, the second edition. And this episode is titled Man as Male and Female. So right off the bat, two questions arise. First, why did God create two sexes? And second, can men and women be equal and yet have different roles? You know, in our culture today, we have some crazy ideas going around regarding gender. At the heart of the heresies being put forth is, is people having demanded that they can be any gender or any non-gender uh, they please uh, to be based solely on their own feelings and not on actual truth. They, in essence, are declaring themselves to be God with the ability to change how they were born into, into something that's impossible. Now, this is different from uh, the homosexual viewpoint that states homosexuals are born that way. Of course, this is also a lie of the devil and, and counter to scripture. These views are nothing less than sin, and uh, these sins include uh, things ranging from idolatry to sexual immorality. So with that out of the way, let's, let's get back to two questions again. Why did God create two sexes, and can men and women be equal and yet have different roles? Well, we begin by finding uh, that answer by going to God's Word. So let's start by reading Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The word image is key here in this verse. Uh, the image of God in humanity pertains to the capacity for spiritual relationship. Just as God has the capacity for relationship, so man and woman, male and female, have been created to reflect that image and enter into a relationship with their creator. And this is also used in the, in the, uh, uh, seen in the word of the use of the word soul. Uh, and the soul most distinguishes humanity from the rest of God's uh, created life. Uh, looking at Genesis 2-7, uh, we see that it is only human beings who God breathes life into them, physical, mental, and spiritual, created to bear his image. Now let's read uh, Genesis 2-7, and then uh, also we're going to read 2-18-24. So 2-7 reads, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Then in 18 through 24 of Genesis, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Then starting in verse 21, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man, then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Then here in verse 24, we see the personal relationship that's couched in marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So now we're beginning to see some truths here that begin in the Old Testament and come to completion in the New Testament. In other words, truth that can only be complete in Christ and his marriage to the church. 
Now, let's take the first truth, uh, that human beings have been created by God. And I think uh, uh, the this begs for the explanation, uh, why did he create us? When you make something, you have a reason for making it, but does the world as we know it give an adequate answer to this question? Now, the Old Testament speaks of man uh, bringing the world under his dominion. It speaks of being created to show forth God's glory. It speaks of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But what do we see? We see a world in rebellion against the Creator. We see uh, in the Old Testament scriptures uh, coming uh, to an end with the story of creation utterly unfinished and the hope of glory still to come. So just believing that God created human beings the way the Old Testament uh, scriptures teach uh, does beg for the rest of the story uh, to be told. And that's namely uh, that only in Christ can the purpose of creation be achieved. So God created us in his image. Surely this must have had something to do with uh, why we are here. His purpose in making us must have something wonderful to do with the fact that we are not uh, like other animals, like uh, frogs or lizards or birds or, or, or whatever. We are human beings in the image of God. We alone and no other animal. But look at the mess that uh, we made uh, given this awesome dignity. Are we like God? Well, yes and no. Yes, we are like God, even sinful and, unbe and unbelieving. There's, there's a likeness. And we know this because in Genesis 9, 6, God said to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So another way of saying that is, even in a world where sin abounds, uh, human beings are still in the image of God. And, and we can't treat these uh, 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 human beings created by God like, uh, like mice or mosquitoes or, or something that we would just stamp out. And what happens is we forfeit our life if we murder a human being. And uh, that's reflected in James 3.9. But are we the image God made us to be? Is it, not the, is it not that the image marred sometimes beyond recognition? Do you feel that you uh, are like God in a way that you should be? So here again, the belief that we were created in God's image uh, tells us that, that there has to be completion. And in this case, that, that looks like redemption and transformation, uh, a recreation that uh, comes through Christ. We read in Ephesians 2.8, uh, By grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then again, put on the new nature, created after the likeness of God, and true righteousness and holiness. So God created us in his image, but we have marred it uh, almost beyond recognition. But Jesus is the answer. He comes by faith, he forgives, he cleanses, and he begins this sanctification process that will uh, end in the glory that God intended for human beings in the first place. So therefore, since we know that we were created in the image of God, our sin and corruption 
does beg for the answer, and that answer is Jesus Christ. Another truth that we see is that uh, in these verses is that God created us male and female. And this too, again, points to, to Christ and, and begs, again, for completion in Christ. So how, how, how does this work? Well, at least in two ways. One comes from the mystery of marriage, and the other comes from this, this ugliness, this historical uh, uh, ugliness of male-female relationships and sin. So let's look first at the, at the mystery of marriage. In Genesis 2.24, uh, right after the account of how a woman was created, we see that, therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, when the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Ephesians 5.31, he says, this is a great mystery. And I say it refers to Christ and the church. And, and here's the clue. He unfolds the meaning of marriage. It's a symbol of Christ's love for the church, and it's represented in, in the husband's loving headship towards his wife. It's a symbol of the church's glad submission to Christ, represented in the wife's relation to her husband. And he calls this, uh, uh, Paul calls this mystery from uh, Genesis 2.24, he calls it a mystery because God did not reveal clearly all his purposes for the marriage of male and female in Genesis. Now, there was hints, there was uh, pointers in the Old Testament that uh, marriage was like the relation of God and his people. But it's only when Christ came did the mystery of marriage uh, uh, become clear. And it's meant to be a portrait of Christ's covenant with his people and his commitment to his church. So we ask another question again. Do we see how God's creating man as male and female and then ordaining marriage as a relationship in which a, a male leaves uh, mother and father and cleaves to his wife in a covenant commitment, how this act of creation and this ordinance of marriage, again, point to the revelation of Christ and his church. So, you know, this, this is a foreign concept to most people, and, and sadly to, to some Christians, because marriage is a secular institution as well as a Christian one. You find it in all cultures, not just in Christian societies. So we are not prone to think of all the non-Christian marriages uh, that we know as mysterious symbols of Christ's relation to the church. But they are. And our very existence as male and female in marriage uh, cries out for Christ to make himself known in his relation to the church. And Christianity completes our understanding of the marriage covenant. You know, Christ is coming again uh, to this earth. And as, even as we saw him go, he will come again, and the angel said. So imagine the, uh, this day. The heavens are opened, the trumpets sound, and the Son of Man appears on the clouds with power and great glory, and with tens of thousands of holy angels shining like the sun, he sends them out uh, to gather his elect from the four winds and raises us from the dead, those who died in Christ. 
and he gives them new and glorious bodies like his own and transforms the rest of us in the twinkling of an eye uh, to be fit for glory. And this, this, this long, long preparation for the bride of Christ, the church, is finally complete, and he takes her arm, as it were, and leads her to the table. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come. He stands at the head of the table, and, and a great silence falls over the millions of saints. And he says, this is my beloved, was the meaning of marriage. This is what it all pointed towards. This is why God created male and female and ordained the covenant of marriage. Henceforth, there will be no more marriage and given in marriage for the final uh, reality has come and, and the shadow can pass away. Now, remember what we're doing here. We're, we're trying to see uh, this, this truth that God created us in the images male and female and that it points to... Uh, the church, or Christianity, if you will, at its completion. The first was by the mystery of marriage, the creation of human beings as male and female, and it provides a necessary framework uh, for creation for the ordinance of marriage. You can't have marriage without male and female, and the meaning of marriage is not known uh, in its fullness until we see it uh, as Christ's relationship to the church. So creation as male and female points to marriage, and marriage points to Christ in the church. And therefore the belief that God created us in his image as male and female is not complete without Christianity, uh, without Christ and his saving work for the church. Now sin distorted or distorts uh, how we think about male-female relationships. Uh, how male and female were created in God's image. But it still points to uh, what uh, was done by Christ uh, on the cross. It still points to Christianity, as it were, as uh, the necessary completion. When sin entered the world, the effect on our relationship as male and female, it was devastating. God comes to Adam after he had eaten the forbidden fruit and asks what's happened. And Adam says in, in Genesis 3.12, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Uh, in other words, uh, it's her fault, or God, it's your fault for giving her to me. So if somebody must die for eating the fruit, you know, maybe it should be her. And there you have, this is the beginning of, of, of what we have today. It's the beginning of domestic violence. It's the beginning of wife of abuse. Uh, it's, it's the beginning of rape and sexual slurs and, and all the different ways that uh, women uh, are, be, are belittled uh, uh, by men. In Genesis 3.16, uh, there's a curse pronounced on fallen men and women like this. To the woman, to the woman God says, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In other words, the result of sin and the curse of our age is conflict between the sexes. This verse is not a description of the way things should be. This is a description of the cursed way things are going to be while sin uh, still reigns. We have dominating men, and we have devious women. 
And this is not the meaning of male and female in God's image. This is, this is the corruption and the, and the ugliness of sin. But how does this point to, to Christianity? Well, it points to Christianity because it, it begs for healing. Uh, the healing that, that uh, Christ brings to, to the relationship between men and women. If God created us in his image as male and female, that implies equality of personhood, equality of dignity, mutual respect, harmony, and, and a unified destiny. But where is all this in the history of the world? Well, again, it's in the healing that Jesus brings. A beautiful picture of this healing that Jesus does uh, uh, by bringing uh, male and female together. Uh, we can find it in 1 Peter 3.7. And Peter says that a Christian husband and wife are fellow heirs of the grace of life. What does that mean? It means that in Christ, men and women, uh, we recover what was meant by being created male and female in God's image. It means that together as male and female, uh, they are to, uh, this image is to bring forth the glory of God, and together as fellow heirs, they are to inherit the glory of God. So creation is male and female in God's image, and again, when you see it uh, alongside sin, uh, this speaks of the completion of healing that comes with the transforming work of Christ. And the, and the inheritance that he purchased for sinners. So Christ recovers from sin the reality that male and female are fellow heirs of the grace of life. And I, and I think that's uh, an incredible picture there. Now, it's, uh, I think it behooves us also to look at uh, uh, not, not, not all believers uh, marry, uh, Some folks uh, remain single. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul says something here that's, uh, I think it was radical for the day. Uh, it reads, To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single, as I do. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord and how to please the Lord. The unmarried woman is anxious about the affairs of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. I say this, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And that's uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and then 32, uh, uh, 35. So what does this imply? Well, it implies that the healing that Jesus brings to male and female created in God's image is not dependent on marriage. In fact, Paul's experience as a single man uh, taught him that there's a kind of single-minded devotion to the Lord possible to the single man or woman uh, that is not usually the portion of uh, married folks. Another way of saying this is that marriage is a temporary institution uh, for this age until the resurrection of the dead. The essence of its meaning and purpose is to represent Christ's relation to the church. But when the reality comes, the representation as we know it, it would be laid aside and there will be neither marriage uh, nor giving in marriage in the age to come. And those who have been single and, and those who have been devoted to the Lord, uh, they're going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb as full fellow heirs of the grace of life. 
and according to their devotion to the Lord and their sacrifices, they will be re rewarded with affections and relationships and joys that are going to be beyond uh, all imagination. Now, uh, back up with me, if you will, and uh, let's go back to Genesis 2.19. And it reads, Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. You can see uh, Adam sitting there, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Mr. And Mrs. Rhinoceros, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Orangutan, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus, and so on. And Adam called out their names as the animals paraded before him. And as he did, there must have come a point when he came to the realization that everyone but him had a counterpart. Well, I got to make something Adam uh, happen, Adam could have said. Uh, climbing trees and running around the, the uh, garden, if you will, looking for a mate. Uh, he could have searched the world to find his counterpart. But the closest that he would have come uh, would have been an orangutan or a chimpanzee. And that's what happens to a lot of people today. Aware of their single state, they say, I got to find somebody. So off they go to, you know, uh, uh, wherever it is, maybe... Uh, uh, the singles bar, or the, or or to church to find a mate, um, uh, and 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 they 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 come back, you know, empty, um, or they come back settling for less uh, than what God had intended. You know, when Adam was in a deep uh, uh, deep sleep, uh, from out of his side came a bride. You know, down the tunnel of time, uh, another bride would come forth from the side of another Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. When a Roman soldier uh, stuck a spear in his side and, 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 the, and the fluids of blood and water poured forth, a bride was born, and that bride was the church. That was you and me. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, Paul instructed the Ephesians in 5.25. Husbands, you are to love your wife like Christ loved the church. In other words, you're to die uh, to your needs, your desires, your dreams, because that's what Christ did for us. Father, if it be possible, let this cup of death pass from me, Jesus prayed. Nevertheless, not my will, uh, but your will be done. Wife, you came from the side of man, and you will find fulfillment at the side of your man, neither leading him nor lagging behind him, but standing by him, standing with him, submitting to him. But know this, wives, your husbands will never be all you want or need him to be. A rib was taken from Adam, and, and men have been missing something ever since. There's only one who has it all together, and he's, not, and he's called the second Adam, which means uh, there might be a third one. Let me rephrase that. He's not called the second Adam, which means there might be a third one. He is called the last Adam because... There is no other. He's not missing a thing. Why? Because he wasn't born the way every man since the first Adam was born. And he will be the one who will listen to you by, your, uh, by the hour and walk with you in the garden in the cool of the day. He will be the one who will hear not only uh, the words of your lips, but also the cry of your heart. He will be the one who will truly understand you. 
That's when we start seeking what we crave from the last Adam, from Jesus Christ. We take pressure off our husband or wife and are then able to enjoy them without expecting something from them that, that they can't give us. Adam said in Genesis 2.23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You know, God is a triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because he made us in his image, man is triune as well. Our body is the physical part of us that relates to the material world around us. Our soul speaks of our mind and emotions and relates to the people around us. Our spirit is a part of us that relates to God and will live forever. I believe that it was a matching of body, soul, and spirit that caused Adam to realize he was truly bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. You know, and I, could, I believe the same could be uh, true for us. With regard to the body, there must be a physical attraction between you and the one you marry. Secondly, with regard to the soul, one must be able to communicate on the same uh, wavelength with the one uh, he or she marries. Thirdly, with regard to the spirit, one's love for the Lord, one's love, uh, commitment to the Lord, involvement with the Lord, must be equal of, of the one he or she marries. Body, soul, spirit. When these three are uh, mirrored in uh, one another, it's literally a match made in heaven. The problem is we usually settle for two out of three. You can, you can uh, uh, hear someone saying, I feel spark for her romantically, he says. And she has that same feeling for me. Spiritually, we both love the Lord, go to Bible study and pray together. But the soul, well, she likes smalls and I like backpacking. She likes to talk and I don't. But we can make this work. And yes, they can make it work, but it will take a lot of work, and uh, it'll just take a lot of work. And with regard to the soul, you know, we're best friends, uh, she says. We, we talk by the hour and just love hanging out with each other. And spiritually, we both love the Lord and are committed to the kingdom. But physically, I, I, I can't explain it, but he doesn't do much for me. This relationship can work, but again, it will take a lot of work uh, to make it work. Because someday someone will come along who will spark that physical connection and then there's going to be problems. Body, soul, and spirit. You know, it's amazing to me how many couples connect in only two out of the three or even one out of the three. When people settle for one out of the three, their marriage almost inevitably ends in divorce. When couples settle for two out of three, they can make it work, but it takes a lot of work. It is those who connect on all three levels who, like Adam, are able to say, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now, marriage uh, and misery, misery go hand in hand, uh, the world says, but not God. He says, I want marriage to be a taste of heaven for you. If you go my way, it can be just like that. If you listen to this and... Uh, you, you may be saying it's a little late for me to hear this. Uh, you might be thinking I'm one of those who settle for uh, only one match out of the three and I married the wrong person. Or maybe you've gone through a divorce and uh, maybe you dropped the ball if you missed the mark. Know this, 
We all have. Every one of us has totally blown it. But the good news is that, is that the work of the cross completely takes care of our failures and our shortcomings and our sin. And all we have to do is say, Lord, I failed. I determined by your grace and with your help to walk rightly to the greatest possible degree. And if my hurts or mistakes can help others, use my wounds. If we confess our sin rather than cover it up, or excuse it, or, or justify it, our point of failure can be our point of greatest ministry. So what does this three out of three look like? What does this true oneness look like? In Genesis 2, 24 and 25, it reads, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So, true oneness, or true unity, is based on two requirements. The first one is leaving. Uh, leaving mom and dad is not a problem for most of us. The problem lies in leaving uh, the relationship at work, and leaving the man or the woman at the office to whom you pour out your heart, with whom you share your dreams. Uh, but, but, but we say it's, 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 it's not a problem. Well, Jesus said, uh, no man can serve two masters, for he will eventually begin to hate one of them. Therefore, if you hold on to any outside relationship, almost imperceptibly at first, your husband or wife will slowly uh, begin to bother you. I wish that she would cut her hair, or I wish he wasn't such a slob. You'll, you'll find yourself thinking. So she cuts her hair and he cleans himself up, but then uh, you wish her hair was long, or that he wasn't so concerned about his appearance, because no matter what he or she does, it won't be quite right. It's all too easy to invest time and energy into relationships outside of marriage that will be hugely problematic in every instance because Jesus says wherever a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. That's why Paul says if, if any woman has a question, let her ask her husband. Therefore, whenever a wife says, but my husband doesn't know anything about spiritual matters. Uh, and maybe she's talking to her pastor and, 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 and she says, Pastor, can I talk to you? It's, it's going to be the wise pastor that says, if he doesn't know the answer, he'll ask me and I'll have the privilege of sharing with him, after which he'll come home and share it with you. The Bible teaches that marriage requires leaving and cleaving. And, you know, and although the world doesn't understand this, uh, the Bible tells us that physical intimacy is more than simply two bodies coming together. It's two souls being made one. And that's why we're not to defraud our partner. We need to begin uh, to give our spouses uh, the feelings that will come through the process of leaving and cleaving. You know, in the very first marriage seminar ever given, you know, it was held in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve to leave and cleave. And the degree to which we do this is the degree to which we'll experience unity and joy in our own marriages. Now, moving on and uh, looking back at uh, uh, Grudem's systematic theology, uh, specifically pages 585 through 589, 
Uh, we're going to see that there were distinct roles of men and women before the fall, and there is an order established by God. First, that God spoke to Adam first, and that Adam, not Eve, represented the human race, and that the curse of sin brought a distortion of the previous roles, not an introduction of new roles. And we also hear, see here that redemption in Christ reaffirm, reaffirms the creation order. And then finally on page 593, we see the frequent misunderstanding of mutual submission uh, uh, that was found in uh, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. In other words, husbands submitting to their wives. And this is not taught in scripture, and Dr. Grudem does a good job uh, fleshing this out here. But I think we should look at this more closely. I think that there is a way that a uh, husband submits, but not to his wife, but to Christ and through Christ. And what does that look like? It looks like loving his wife. So let me read Ephesians 5, uh, starting at verse 20. It reads, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is in himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Guys, in Genesis 21.12, uh, God said to Abraham, Hearken unto the voice of your wife. How does this work out practically? This means that while I as a husband am held responsible for the direction of my family, I must not be dictatorial in my behavior towards them. There are times when I need to listen to my wife, when you need to listen to your wife, uh, realizing that the Lord can speak through her. Therefore, it is the wise husband who says to the wife, I want to hear your heart and mind on this matter and match it against the word of God because I know that I am the one who will ultimately be held responsible. And suddenly, rather than being a justification for me to be dictatorial over my wife, uh, this would humble me before the Lord, realizing that I am being held accountable for the direction of my family. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives. Again, God and God's instructions are so clear, inspired by God's Spirit. Paul simply says, Husbands, love your wives. How? We see uh, it says, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So how should we love our wives? How should you love your wife? Just as Jesus loves you, 
just as Jesus loves the church. And first of all, he loves sacrificially. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam parted with a bone. On the hill of Calvary, the, uh, the last Adam poured out his blood. At creation, the first Adam gave something of himself. On the cross, the last Adam gave all of himself. This means that if I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church, I'll love her to the point uh, where I die to my own dreams, to my own desires, and to my own wishes. In other words, I'll love her to death. Second, Jesus loves the church unconditionally. Jesus doesn't love us only if, uh, uh, if we're uh, good boys and girls, only if we have morning devotions, only if we tithe. He loves us, period. And I am to love my wife in the same manner. I'm not to love her only when she makes good meals or laughs at my dumb jokes or if she pleases me. I'm to, I'm, I'm to love her, period. And there isn't a woman on the face of the earth who will have difficulty, uh, difficulty submitting to a man who loves her in that way. Submission is never a problem when a man loves his wife as Christ loves the church. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, <clears throat> that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. As the bride of Christ, what does Jesus do to us? He washes us with the water of the word. He irons out the wrinkles. He takes away uh, the blemishes. In doing so, Jesus says, I know my bride isn't perfect, but I'm going to work on her and in her that she might be sanctified, made beautiful, washed by the water of my word. If you don't like your wife, uh, my brothers, because you've been a miserable husband. 1 Corinthians eleven seven tells us, the woman is the glory of the man. And the word glory literally means reflection. If I look at my wife and I don't like what I see, it's because I'm seeing a reflection of my own failure. You who say, I just don't like my wife, when was the last time you washed her with the water of the word? When was the last time you opened the Bible with her? When was the last time uh, you humbled yourself before the Lord and prayed with her? If I don't like my wife's appearance or attitude or actions, the tendency could be for me to say, I'll just find someone else. But that won't work either because my next wife, also being a reflection of my own shortcomings, will inevitably seem just as flawed to me. You know, the first uh, miracle Jesus ever did was at a marriage ceremony. And that's where uh, miracles need to happen most often. The wine having run out, Jesus called the servants apart and said, Take those stone pots, fill them to the brim with water, then serve the water to the guest. And sure enough, as the servants began to pour the water, it was changed into wine of the highest quality. So, so too, husbands, just as Jesus came as a servant of all, you're to be a servant to your wife. If the wine of romance, the wine of happiness, the wine of joy is gone from your marriage, first fill it up with your own earthen vessel with the water of the word. Get back into the word. Reestablish a devotional time. Study the scriptures. Uh, join a men's fellowship group. Do whatever it takes to fill up your life with the word. And once you're filled, take what you're learning and serve your wife the water of the word and watch it be transformed uh, into the wine of joy. Ephesians 5.28 says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Uh, he that loves his wife uh, loves himself. 
According to Paul, the best thing you can do for yourself, husband, is to love your wife. Loving your wife is actually better for you than than playing uh, 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 racquetball or lifting weights or playing golf or, or whatever it is that uh, might be your passion. You know, love's a verb. It's an action. It's not a feeling. It's something you choose to do. Ephesians 5, 29 and 30 says, For no man yet hated his own flesh, uh, uh, but uh, nourished it and cherished it, even as the Lord uh, uh, cherishes the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. You know, contrary to what society says, the Bible declares we don't have to be taught to love ourselves. We already do. That's why Ephesians 5.31 says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. You know, for a marriage to be successful, a man must leave those who were closest to him and cleave to his wife. If there's another female he's sharing with, talking with, or ministering to, he's headed for disaster. And we say, oh, but she's just a co-worker, or she's just telling me her problems, or, or I'm, I'm trying to win her to the Lord. But, but no, Jesus said, Whenever a man, wherever a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. Therefore, if he puts his treasure in her, if he shares his heart or scripture or insights with her, his heart will follow inevitably. And because no man can serve two masters uh, without hating one, he'll end up hating his wife. I firmly believe this is one of the uh, biggest dangers to marriages in, in the church today. It's not the seductress who's the problem. It's the person with whom you're, you're, you're casually sharing and, and giving counsel. Therefore, if you're a wise man, you'll choose not to talk with women in a deep way about your frustrations or your fears or your doubts or your dreams. You'll cleave only to your wife, and as you do, you'll find romance and being uh, rekindled again and again. The world says, if I loved her, I would cleave to her. But the Bible says, cleave to her, and you'll love her. We're going to end here, and uh, you know I, I want to thank you for spending time with us today. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again next week as we continue to look at uh, Dr. Grudem's systematic theology. But uh, as, as I leave you here, I just want to uh, leave you with this, uh, that this being created as male and female, this beautiful picture of, of marriage, this beautiful, beautiful picture of distinctions uh, in roles uh, between men and women, uh, that this was all uh, uh, created by a holy, perfect God uh, and, and uh, all according to His will and His good purposes. And so uh, take that with you today. Uh, uh, look at uh, your relationship uh, to God through His Word, through Jesus Christ, Look at your marriage. Uh, uh, make sure that uh, it, it aligns with uh, Scripture, with the Word of God. And, and, uh, and then go with God. And uh, I pour uh, uh, blessings out on you uh, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you, and you have a great day.